Welcome to Dank Justice, where we go on a high adventure discovering and exploring true drug crimes, conspiracies, legends, and murders. Hey, everybody. Uh, we recorded Party Monster as our very first episode, and we honestly thought we were going to post it as our very first episode. But as you can tell, we changed our minds. It got way too long to be a first episode and there is way too much information for us to try and cram it into a single episode so ketchup and i decided that we would make it a two-parter so surprise yay congratulations so that being said take all of this episode with a little bit of a grain of salt realize that it was supposed to be our first episode But we still really wanted to share it with you, so enjoy. And remember, just because you're taking it with a grain of salt doesn't mean that the facts have changed. Exactly. still did our research. Just understand that there's some nervousness and some giggles there. There's also probably way more information than we actually needed, but that's okay. But you're getting it anyways. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Dank Justice. We are super excited to bring you this new podcast about true junk crimes. And the legends behind your popular based crimes. I guess we should probably explain Dank Justice is our podcast about drug crimes, the agents that worked undercover, any kind of like drug conspiracies, things like Kurt Cobain, stuff like that. Like if it is considered a crime or some kind of mystery involving drugs, we are your source. Exactly. That is our goal to bring you the unheard and some of the heard stories involving drugs. So I am the marijuana smoker. I am Definitely not the marijuana smoker in the group. I know nothing about drugs. I'm going to give a little bit of my smoking background just because I feel like that's something that should be done. Possibly important. Um, so, yeah. So, actually, the, the very first time I ever smoked pot was at the age of 18. I didn't know you had started that late. Yes. So it was actually one of these crazy things where my younger sister was dating this guy and she had got grounded, but she was allowed to go out if she went out with me. Like I said, she was dating this guy and she asked if I would pretend that we were going to the movies or what. Ever, so that we could go over to her boyfriend's house and smoked a bunch of cigarettes, did a bunch of stuff with these guys. And my sister and her boyfriend at the time went into this room. And the guy that I was sitting with, his name was Scooter. I've heard stories about Scooter. Yes. So legitimately, his name was Scooter. And he looks at me and he's like, I'm going to smoke. Is that cool? And we just finished a cigarette. And I went, yeah, sure. Fine. Because I thought he was talking cigarettes. Next thing I know, he lights up a bowl and two and a half bowls and four episodes of South Park later. And I'll be honest, I didn't smoke super heavily or really consistently until a few years ago. And I primarily smoke because chronic pain issues, but it's also fun when you don't have to work in the morning to get high. It's definitely something you enjoy. It is. 
So do you want to give us a little bit of your background and a little bit of like your life? I know like mine was primarily marijuana related. I can definitely tell you why I don't smoke marijuana because I'm absolutely not against it. However, I personally do not react well to marijuana. Um, I have been high twice. The first time I had a major panic attack, couldn't breathe, passed out. The panic attack lasted for three days before I ended up in the hospital. It was it was bad enough. Like I I didn't trust myself driving. I honestly I've worn corsets that were looser than how tight my chest felt. So I didn't try it again for a long time. And then I was I was 17 at the time. Um I was working at an amusement park that first time and um, we were building haunted houses and my friend goes, Hey, do you want to see something? And I was like, um, sure. And he's like, do you want to try it? And I was like, depends on what it is. And so that's how I tried it the first time. Cause I was like, yeah, might as well try it. And then it took quite a few years to try it again. I was 21 the second time I tried it. And my friend said, oh, it must have just been the strand you were on. That is quick interruption. Look, friends, if you smoke and you have a friend that says, hey, I don't like it. It gives me a reaction. Don't say, oh, it was just a strain because it is likely not the strain. So I'm so, that's. So I tried it and this time it was an edible. And so I tried the edible and I had, and because it wasn't in the air, I'm pretty sure I got a whole lot less high. Yeah. So the reaction was not nearly as bad, but it it was still pretty awful, still pretty panic inducing. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. And then, although I did get secondhand like almost secondhand high while you and I were hanging out at the lake house. I mean, and I felt really bad about that. You do know. That I should have known better. Sat there and like aired everything out and felt terrible. <laughs> so like I said, I don't care if people smoke around me. They just can't blow it in my face or near me. And Pooh is really good at that. She has, what is it? A smoke buddy? I do. So she uses a smoke buddy when I'm around. And then, um, we were hanging out at a lake house and we were up in the big old loft and it was a huge room and there was fans going and we were sitting on opposite ends. And I was like, no, it's fine. Like, go ahead. And she had forgot her smoke buddy. And so I'm sitting there and I was like, oh no, I'll be right back or something like that. I don't even remember what I did, but I was like, I'll be right back. And I ended up downstairs. It was like, I need, I need some air. So I ended up like laying on the couch downstairs while I breathed some non-marijuana air (laughs) chest was tight I could feel my heart racing like I could hear it pumping through my ears and um so I like forced myself to like sit there and count my breathing and it and it calmed down I had I obviously I had caught it fast enough but oh I had gone downstairs to get a drink or something and I like brought it halfway up the stairs and was like here it is I'm going downstairs again so so I did I went downstairs who aired out the loft. We were much better after the fact, but it it doesn't sit well with me. So we are here to record Drug True Crime. Yes, we are here to record Dink Justice. Yes, I want to transition. Okay, tell us what we're talking about today. Yes. Tonight. So 
this morning, wherever, whatever time you're listening to. Yeah, wherever you're at. So one of the first cases that I want to talk about here is one that actually a lot of people know. But when I first mentioned it to you, you didn't know the case that I was talking about. I had no idea. I still don't really know what it's about. So it is the party monster case, also known as Disco Bloodbath. And it is Michael Aleg Freeze, and they killed Andre Angel Martinez. And this case comes up quite a bit in the, like, it's not necessarily an autobiography, but kind of the the title of the same name that is a book by the former club kid Jameson James, The Party Monster or Disco Bloodbath. And that's where I got a lot of the kind of more personal first hand accounts for this case. And I will make sure that we have like all of those credits and everything in the bio. And I do want to say that there is so much information about this case and I'm going to try and give as much in context credit as I can but there are so many things that it's just going to end up being a lot of different links (laughs) in the biography of this because it was so much and the other thing I do want to talk about is that while writing a lot of this novel that I'm going to be using a lot of the reference for James St. James was on a lot of drugs and so we have to take a lot of those things into consideration because some of this may be not necessarily incredible so one of the things that I really want to talk about is the club kids and we could do an entire podcast on the club kids alone And all the different people that were influenced and all the different people that we still know about today within the rave scene and within the drag scene and things like that. It's a lot. And some of these people may end up coming back later on for different cases because of what they've been involved in. But I'm going to try and give you just kind of a basic overview of what happened, what was going on, and the club kid scene. Now, the club kid, is that kind of, is that just like the title of all of these people? Is that like a click, like emo or popular or jock? So club kid was originally introduced in a front page article, I believe, for the New York Times or New York Magazine, and it was how they labeled these people going into the different nightclubs that had started appearing at that time. Okay. And so it wasn't something that was necessarily developed by them, but it became kind of a cultural significance of like what we would consider now the rave scene or ravers. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. and there was a lot of drag influence and things like that with it. All right. I was just curious. I'd heard you use club kids before and didn't know. Yeah. One of the biggest things that needs to be talked about is this all happened in New York and New York of the early 80s of the 80s and early 90s is a very different New York than what we think of today. So it was very pre-Giuliani New York, which 
makes sense because Giuliani went through this whole thing of like, we need to clean up the streets. We need to do all of this. We need to do all of these raids. And in 1982, there was actually a article entitled Protecting Yourself Against Crime in New York Magazine, which kind of spoke to like the best locks to use, the best alarms, places to take uh, self-defense courses, things like that, kind of rent strikes. So think of like Rent the Musical where people aren't going to pay their rents and things like that. People are being turned off. Um, Reagan had been elected to office and that became kind of the death of the arts For a lot of people within New York, it was a big time for the AIDS HIV epidemic. And that was a huge thing with both the LGBTQ plus and the drug communities. There was a quote that was said in an article of uh, written by Samuel R. Delaney in the early 90s about that said you weren't afraid of getting AIDS you were just wondering when the symptoms were going to show up that's terrible yeah it it was a big deal at that point it was a very different New York than what we are used to and what we're seeing at the tourist New York now so a lot of things really started to change in kind of the club scene when club 57 which had been one of the hottest night spots in New York shut down. It used to be a really big hangout for people like later that same place was replaced by the Limelight Tunnel and Area, which was open and it began to host people like Lady Bunny, superstar DJ Kiyoki, a girl literally named Jenny Tilia. Whether she chose that name or her parents gave it to her. One is a congratulations, one is an I'm sorry. Right. And then also Bianca Jagger, who I found out was Mick Jagger's wife for a very short period of time. Fantastic. It was kind of the start of like who the club kids were and how they kind of became who they were. And we're going to talk a little bit about Michael Alec, who is the person that committed our murder. So Michael Alec was born a gay man in April of 1966, and he was born in South Bend, Indiana. And he was made fun a lot as a kid. He was teased because he was gay. He had a lot of different effeminate things that people teased him about. And he was very excited, according to James St. James, and would brag a lot about being in an experimental school. And I kind of looked up what those were, and they were known as the free school movement or a new school alternative school. And it was based on a book written in the 60s by A.S. Niels entitled Summerhill, which was basically the concept of an English headmaster decided that he was going to take everyone's votes and everyone's ideas into into consideration. So rather than setting rules in a school, he asked his children that he was the headmaster of in the school, how, what rules do you want? When do you want to go to school? How do you feel about this? 
Very interesting. Yeah. And so for me, that ends up making a lot of sense because later on, he ends up meeting up with these club owners that give him all of this money that are basically blank checks to do whatever he wants. Wow. Yeah. And according to uh, James St. James, too, his mom was a person that kind of had, like, men and women in out of her house, which is fine. No slut-shaming. But he kind of took that into a way that I think was negative. And he was primarily taken care of by his neighbors. And so he didn't necessarily have a home to go to with them. That's incredibly rough on a child. Yeah. So he ended up moving to New York where he became kind of the king of the club kids. And just to go a little bit more into the club kids, it was kind of, they were known for wild outfits, crazy makeup, over the top colors. They did theme parties that would often get out of control. Um, They did a pool party in the basement of one of the places where Michael was able to host parties at. And he just filled up a bunch of kiddie pools. They did a bunch of ecstasy. Michael ended up breaking the water pipe and flooding the basement. Oh, it went from a creative pool party to an actual pool party. Yeah. And then they would do things like a woman setting her vagina on fire and then squirting breast milk into the audience. Wow. People would actually like run up and try and catch the breast milk to be able to make white Russians. I mean, I like a white Russian, but I don't know if I would try to do it with breast milk. Right. There was also a big thing that one of Michael's first parties, they had people dress in animal costumes And they did Clara the Carefree Chicken, who became a very common place. They did Hans Ulrich the Leather leather Dog. Okay, so they brought furries in. Yep. Way to be inclusive. Yep. Um, The other big thing that they did was a woman named Ida Slapter. She pulled a lit string of Christmas light out of her rectum and she had inserted a battery pack into her small intestine beforehand so that she could plug them in and then pull them out. That sounds painful. What if they had lit while still in her? I feel like that would burn a lot. But they would have. They would have had to because she pulled them out when they were lit. I mean, that's fair. I just imagine them like turning on as she was pulling them out. Yeah. But yeah, no, they had to have been lit. You're right. Ouch. Yeah. They would also do things called outlaw parties, which we would kind of figure is like a flash mob. So they'd show up at like completely random places that were completely out of context in full like club gear and things like that to get this party started. And then as soon as they were kicked out or the cops would show up or whatever, they'd just end up at whatever nightclub was already planning to have them. And so they did them in like Burger King restaurants, um, Train cars on subways. 
things like that. That explains a lot of where flash mobs come from. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it was just a very, very interesting thing. And then I do want to talk about, like, one of the most disturbing parties that Michael ever threw, being his club promoter, was one called Blood Feast. And he had everyone come in covered in blood and gore. And he made it look as though people had had arms and legs removed. And when he tried to submit the flyer for it, it was with genitalia eating his brains. And it was not approved by the promoter. I wonder why. Right. Not really. I also would not approve that. Yeah. So going back to Michael and kind of going back to like how crazy this ends up being. Michael was super anti-drug when he very first joined the scene of nightclubs and promoters. Um, According to a lot of different sources, it was actually almost annoying. So he would say things to people would take an occasional bump or things like that. And he would give, I mean, he would give people shit for it. And the club kid scene was not originally about drug drug use, which has eventually become kind of a misconception about it because of the murder that ended up happening. Um, It was a lot later that drugs became a very big thing in this. And... um, Occasionally, there definitely would be the occasional mushroom punch or a spike ecstasy punch or something like that. But it was never something that was big deal at that point. Sounds like it was never a commonplace thing to see drugs all over. Exactly. Eventually, however, as tends to happen, unfortunately, when you start with drugs like ecstasy and cocaine and some of those things, addictions happen and you want that more intense drug high. And that became the goal for Michael, definitely. And some of the club kids got to the point where they were often mixing cocaine, ketamine, heroin, rufinol, and in very long benders going for days at a time, not sleeping, not eating, not really doing what they needed to do to take care of themselves. That sounds horrible. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about ketamine just because I feel like ketamine is one of the most misunderstood drugs of what's being taken. And so ketamine is an anesthetic which is commonly used by medical professionals on human patients to either put them to sleep or perform like twilight procedures so when you're kind of underneath but you're not quite put out underneath enough not to remember exactly like ketamine would be what they use in 2019 ketamine was approved for treating patients with depression and acute suicidal ideations it can also be used to treat chronic pain this works very differently than what is used for purposes of anesthetic it's given to you in a place that you are taken care of by a professional they observe you taking it and you sit there and are observed in doing so 
It can be very, very effective. I myself personally have used it for this medical purpose and it has been helpful. But a lot of people do just view ketamine as a let's get messed up. As a party drug. Yeah, exactly. And it is not. So what is commonly being done with users' recreation is the version of ketamine known as Ketalar. And what you do with that is you bake it, it ends up becoming a powder. According to drug.com, the average dose can kick in anywhere between five to 15 minutes, and it can last anywhere between one to two hours. Wow. Is ketamine, they bake it and put it into a powder. Does that mean they normally snort it? So it can come in a vial. And what people do when it comes in a vial, they'll bake it so that they're able to snort it. You can also inject it, but it's not as common for it to be done that way. Okay. Cause I know, cause you and I have talked about when you had it done medically, you had it intravenously. Mm-hmm. So I was just, I was just curious when it, they said it was baked. So baked is more how you're going to do it for, I mean, not to encourage this is how you should do it. But if you are going to bake it, that's going to be the quicker way to get it done. If you're doing it recreationally. Okay. Short term, your side effects can be memory loss, confusion, dangerously slowed breathing, heavy sedation, hallucinations, dreamlike states uh, with problems of attention. You can have learning issues, blood pressure. Long term, it can actually affect the bladder, kidneys, can cause severe stomach pains. One of the things that Jane St. James is quoted in saying in Party Monster, during the end of his time with Michael, when he's been very addicted to ketamine, he describes his stomach pains as what was happening to me. Food poisoning was my stomach exploding. Oh, that sounds painful. Right? It sounds absolutely awful. Uh, They talk a lot about K-holes, which is described as a near-death or out-of-body experience, which just sounds absolutely terrible. Sounds terrifying. Right? Not worth it. But with these K-holes, what these club kids were doing was they'd get into these K-holes and then they'd take things like cocaine or they'd do crystal meth or something like that, that them out of those K-holes. Okay, so then ketamine's considered a downer. Yes. Okay. And so they were doing all of these things that was just upping them out of these K-holes so they weren't necessarily feeling all the effects that they should have. It was probably an endless cycle of uh, K-hole upper, K-hole upper, yeah. so they didn't Yeah. They could experience the high without the low. Mm -hmm. So Michael really began to do drugs heavily, but really more importantly, he became invaluable to the club owners of this time because he would throw these big parties at places like Limelight or Danceteria or Tunnel And then he would end up paying these people to show up. And when he would pay these famous people to show up, like James St. James or other popular club kids of the time, people were showing up to just see them. And he began doing things like putting drug dealers on the payroll of all of these clubs so that people could show up to these clubs and have these drug dealers on payroll so it'd be like a consistent stream of drugs they would never run out exactly so like you could always show up to a club and find some kind of 
drug dealer that would be able to do these things for you. And the thing about it was, is when he started doing all of these drugs, he was on the payroll of Peter. He was one of the big club owners of the time. And Peter would pay for his rent. Peter would pay for his drugs. When Michael would get busted for pedophilia, Peter would pay off all of those things. And it was just one of those crazy things where he just got away with everything because Peter was able to do it. And so he became this of king of the club kids and because he was having all of these things paid for for him it became so much more about the drugs than the fun and the costumes and the pageantry of what he had originally created at a certain point he kind of fell out of status with the club kid he fell out of status with the people that were hosting these parties he started having seizures because he was that were induced by the massive amount of drugs he was doing so he slowly kind of started to owe people money he had issues drawing people into the clubs for the nights that he was promoting Um, He stopped paying his mortgage, which ended up being three years behind. I feel like if that were to happen nowadays, you wouldn't get three years behind before they kicked you out. Speaks of how different the times are. Exactly. So he kind of just stopped going to clubs, doing some of those things. He also started getting um, investigated by the DEA. I mean, that makes sense with the amount of drugs and stuff. Right. Um, He had a zine that he had published called Project X that he just stopped publishing. So I need to talk a little bit about Freeze, who is our other killer, because he is clearly also important to our story. Robert better known as Freeze, was brought into the scene early on by Bella Bolsky, who was a drag queen. And he sewed for her. According to James St. James, Freeze was a quite young man originally who was a hat maker. Freeze kind of always continued to work for Bella because she gave him a place to live. According to James St. James, he was actually the person who originally suggested that Breeze become a drug dealer for the club kids. Well, we see how well that worked out. Right. And so he eventually kind of just ended up enjoying the attention he was receiving from the different drag queens since he wasn't kind of under Bella's spell anymore He told a bunch of stories and did it basically so that you could get bumps of cocaine. Oh, so it's like offering a joke for a cigarette at the bar. It's described in James St. James's book of like, he would have a bump on the end of a straw and he'd kind of bob it place to place while you listen to the story And then eventually he'd stop where you were at so that you could snort it if you sat there long enough to listen to the story. It's like waving a treat around for a dog. Eventually, Freeze just became vital to the parties because he had the drugs. He had the places to be. And 
eventually um there was actually one point where he sold the wrong drug to a member of a gang and that gang member showed up at the apartment he was at with his roommate and threatened to kill them and he just kind of like shrugged it off how do you shrug that off somebody threatening to kill you right yeah he wasn't there at the time so i guess it didn't matter he was like uh, they'll come back if it really matters. No. Yeah. No. Um, one of the things that I super learned about this like era and this time is it had really nothing to do with who you are. It was about who you know. And so it ended up being a thing where Michael and Freeze had met a few times, but they didn't really become close until Michael had attended an after hours party at his apartment. And it was also said that this was one of the first times that Michael did one of the largest amount of drugs that he had ever done. They all met and then Freeze ended up getting into a whole thing with one of his roommates. The roommate that he was living with and they were fighting all the time about plates and dishes and money because she was also dealing drugs and where did this go and where did that go and she ended up moving and when she moved he ended up losing his apartment and so he kind of ended up bouncing from place to place because he had no place to go and then again ended up making himself as important as he was to Bella by running a bunch of errands and doing a bunch of stuff so that he would have a place to live and drugs and food. And it's even said that at one point he went to go get clean with a friend in Dallas. And when he came back, it was less than 24 hours before he relapsed. That's so hard. And that's, I've, I know that's, typical for people who get clean they go back and when they're around the same people doing the same things Mm -hmm. they fall back into those same habits that's totally what happens and that's why like it's so hard for people to get clean because they do it's hard to let go of your old friends it's hard to let go of those people so I can I can totally understand how he would fall back into that So eventually, Freeze and Michael ended up moving in with one another. It was kind of more out of necessity than anything. Uh, Peter, who has been kind of our bankroller through all of this, who has done everything for Michael. Our sugar daddy? Yeah, our sugar daddy. Um, He bought Michael and Freeze an entirely new loft. So the worst part of this whole thing is they... Forgot about the loft. One of his cats ends up dying and the other one is near death when they finally find her. Oh, those poor kitties. They didn't do anything to deserve that. Yeah. So they're living in this apartment. They're all drugged out. It's awful. And in enters our... Wait, 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 wait. This is the best cliffhanger. So hold on to that for next week. And we'll let everyone know who comes in. That sounds great to me. So join us in two weeks 
for our episode part two. Yes. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks. She is sober. And she's stoned. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Dink Justice. This episode was edited by myself. Our logo was designed by Katie DeDoodles. Check out her Etsy. She does custom work as well as art from pop culture. Pua particularly loves her Doctor Who works and her customs are amazing. Let her know that we sent you. We also want to thank Goat for our name since we were both uncreative in finding one. Thank you for listening and see you in two weeks. Hi. And try. <laughs>